Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, I spoke with Douglas Stewart about his new novel, Young Mungo. Now, Medea, you were not able to join me for this, but it was really a great conversation. I don't know if you've ever read his earlier novel, Shuggy Bane. No, I've never had the chance to read Shuggy Bane. I heard fantastic things about it. I mean, it won a number of awards um, and it seemed really great. It was on my pile of to read. Now it's on my shelf disguised as already read. (laughs) But here I am outing myself as not having read it. (laughs) Well, I would say that it should definitely be shifted over to your definitely will read shelf. Because what I really appreciate about Douglas's writing, and this was true in Shuggy Bane, but it's it's especially true, I think, in Young Mungo, which we're talking about on this week's show. He puts an emphasis on class that I feel we very rarely actually get to see. And particularly in, this is more applicable to Young Mungo, particularly in gay literature and gay romance mm. and gay coming-of-age stories, to tell that from a very particular class perspective that actually decenters the kind of gay narrative or makes that one of many different challenges that the character is facing, I thought was really impactful and made the whole novel feel very fresh and interesting. And his writing is just absolutely fantastic and super sharp, very engrossing. So highly recommend. Well, okay, we should get to the conversation in a minute. But a question I have for you, Eric, is do you think that is a more natural inclination for a European writer than for an American writer? I always wonder if Europeans are just trained to see class in a clearer way than we are. That's a really interesting question. And I would actually have to think about it a little bit more to give you like a good answer. One of the things, and Douglas and I talk about this, For example, Alan Hollinghurst's novels, right? They are also very much about queerness and class. The British class system is very much a part of that, except that it's still being told from the perspective of someone with not access perhaps to the wild privilege of the aristocracy, but Mm -hmm. like definitely kind of proximate to those worlds. I think the characters that Douglas Stewart writes really have no access to that. Um, right. Okay. They're very much thoroughly working class. And again, it really makes you see all the different pressures that kind of get heaped on the character of young Mungo. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm excited to hear this conversation. All right, let's get to it. thrilled to have Douglas Stewart on the line with us today. Douglas is the author of Shuggy Bane, which won the 2020 Booker Prize and the Sue Kaufman Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. That novel also won two British Book Awards and was a finalist for the National Book Award, the Penn Hemingway Award, and many other literary prizes. He joins us today to talk about his new novel, Young Mungo. It's a coming-of-age tale about a young Protestant boy growing up in working-class Glasgow who finds friendship and love with a young Catholic boy who lives nearby. Together, they form a bond that promises to heal the wounds inflicted by family, class, and culture, hoping to build a world all their own before it all, perhaps inevitably, comes crashing down. We're thrilled to have you with us. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you for having me. So first, let's talk a little bit about how this project came to you. 
any reader of Young Mungo, I think, will see certain homologies between that and Shuggy Bane. But the characters in the world felt quite distinct and different. So can you kind of talk about how they came to you? Yeah, you know, I'm a writer that's actually just started being published quite recently, but I've been writing for quite a long time, short stories, novels. And I began Young Mungo in 2016, actually, and I worked on it for about five years. And 2016 was two years before Shuggy Bain had a publishing deal. It was four years before Shuggy published. I had this lovely, gorgeous, private space to work in with no expectations and just in conversation between me and my work. And I work best there. You know, I think any creative person does. But I've been thinking I devour queer literature. I love love stories. I am really in love with love. But I don't often see a queer story that's about coming of age, but also told from a working class perspective. I grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. I live in New York now, but I'm a Scotsman that lives in New York. And I grew up in Glasgow, Scotland in the 80s and the 90s. And for me, being queer was a really isolating and lonely place, not only because of the time, but also because of my social class. It's a stretch to say we were working class. I would say we were very, very poor. We relied on government benefits. And so in my community around me, first of all, my community was all that I knew. I didn't know any more of the city. Glasgow's an incredibly diverse city. It's got a very large middle class. It's got extreme wealth. It's got some of the oldest universities in the world and amazing culture. But for me, I was essentially a kid that grew up on the projects or on a housing scheme, as we call it. And I was really lonely. And so I knew as a writer that I always wanted to write this love story about these two souls sort of looking out of a window, almost in a very classical Romeo and Juliet way, and just seeing each other. And being in this world of masculinity, being in this world of limited opportunities and social mobility, and falling in love and trying to belong. Can you tell me just a little bit about what did gay mean to you in those times? Because I think about it as somebody who grew up largely in the 90s, Gay, we saw on TV, but it was usually reality TV. And no matter how you sliced it, it was not a person that I could see reflecting myself or my, you know, how I moved about in the world. So I'm wondering what gay you had access to. Very little. I was born in 1976. So really, the 80s and the early 90s are my formative years. And I was a young man that grew up under the shadow of AIDS. And so anything to do with sexuality was filled with fear for me. But I also grew up at a time where Margaret Thatcher had Section 28, which is very much like the Florida law that's in debate at the moment. It just outlawed talking about any alternative sexuality or any differences in gender or different genders. And so it was a time of real oppression. And I think through Shuggy Bain, I came to learn that the world was just very homophobic. It wasn't that people were necessarily bad or good. It was just that there was nowhere for young queer people to turn to, to seek some kind of refuge. There were very few allies. On television, you know, I was a kid that grew up without books. And so all of my culture came through the telly. And whenever you would see a queer character on telly, it was very obvious. He was very effeminate. He was very fey. And people were laughing with him, but they were kind of laughing at him, you know? And that translated through to a lot of the things you would see on the street and a lot of the mocking you would receive. But for me, big landmark things about being young and gay was, I think, Boy George was one of the first (laughs) things that really spun my head around. But also, I have to say, Freddie Mercury announcing that he had AIDS was sort of some flagpoles of my youth, I think. And... So it was just incredibly lonely. It was before email. It was before the internet. I hadn't seen huge parts of my own city. You know, it's a city of a million people. And I didn't 
the four streets that I lived on and the school that I went to and the church that I went to was my entire world. So I just didn't know that there was anybody out there. And certainly it was such a gendered world. So for me and for these characters, it's all about the young men learning how to be a man. And there's only one way to be a man. That man is very sexualized. He likes women. He likes fighting. He will grow up to like drinking and football and all these other things. And anything out of that is a bit sus, is a bit suspect. And even for heterosexual men, if they didn't want to be like that, they still found themselves almost on the outsides of masculinity. But certainly for a young queer boy, I was about six years old. And like many young gay people, it was other people who told me I was different before I knew I was different myself. Of course, yeah. It is odd also in that kind of, even when it goes unvoiced, how it's like other people tend to get it, even if they can't quite articulate it before like you exactly can. But let's return to this question about the representation of class, because I do think that there's a way in which young Mungo and Shuggy Bane too could be seen as like a very classic kind of queer, let's say, gay male coming of age story, right? And that would be something that is like the recognition of one's different sexual orientation, the pursuit of love or sexual pleasure, and then the kind of wrangling out of what that means for my identity, right? So that could be the kind of standard thing that we've seen. But I think what I appreciate so much about your writing and what I think brings it such nuance and texture and freshness is that it's not just reducible to the sexual experience or the sexual identity, right? You can actually not, and we'll talk a little bit more about the plot in a second, I promise, for our listeners mostly. You and I already know what happened. But Mungo and the young boy James that he falls in love with, right? So they have multiple things that are getting in their way. One of them is class. Another one is the way in which class inflects the home life that they have. So James's father, he has to go abroad, basically, to work for, I believe it's an oil company. And that means that James spends lots of time alone, you know, which he does tending to his doves. And that's not a euphemism, by the way. He actually does have a do cut that he takes care of doves. And similarly for Mungo, his brother, Hamish, who is a character we definitely have to talk about, is kind of a street thug. His mother is an alcoholic. And his sister, Jody, who's really the kind of shining star of the family, is desperate to find another world for herself and she also struggles to do that, right? So for all of these characters, questions of class and also religion, that's a big frisson of their relationship is that one is a Catholic and one is a Protestant at a time when those two identities are not compatible. So can you talk a little bit about how you see the dimension of class not being added to kind of contemporary gay stories and the nuance that you feel it brings to your characters? All of my favorite queer classics when I was growing up, whether that was Maurice or Giovanni's Room or, or the work of Alan Hollinghurst, felt like they were covering queer desire for me, but they were talking so much about these worlds that had enormous amounts of mobility and were, were often happening behind these velvet ropes or these big panel doors. They were cloistered in these worlds of privilege that I would never, ever, ever have access to. And so in a way, I found the stakes for a lot of the characters in that to be very different. There isn't very often a threat of violence. There isn't a threat of not belonging to the community. You can almost pull up tent pegs and move if things go wrong for you. And yeah, I think for young working class people who are also queer, we have to find out how to belong in that community that sometimes won't let us feel like we belong because it's the only place we know. Growing up, I had 
had other things to worry about than my sexuality. And that is part of the conversation about poverty. I mean, money was always a worry, whether we were going to ever be homeless, whether we were ever going to see violence in the home, all these different things that actually my sexuality became compartmentalized part of myself. But I was worried all the time about addiction because there was addiction in both my community and my home. We were broke. I had my sexuality. And then I was dealing also with the pride and the shame, the push and pull of concealing all of those things. And so there was never a room that I went into as a young person where I felt like a part of myself had to be hidden, whether that was because I was poor or because we had trouble at home or because I was gay. And so I've just always grown up knowing that sometimes some people have more to worry about than just their sexual identity. And so I try to show that these characters have these other things going on. In fact, Shuggy, if you think about Shuggy Bane, half of the book is not really even about his gender. His isn't even about sexual identity. It's about he's just too feminine for the world that he's in. He doesn't have any sexual desires. I didn't give that to him in the novel. But he's got so much to deal with with his mother and with the community around him and with just caring for the person who has abandoned the care of him, that almost his sexuality is a minor concern for him. And I think class does that for us. It gives us other things to worry about. And it changes entirely the cause and the effect and the consequence for every life, for the things that will happen to us and the things that are available to us and the choices we make. It also limits the choices. We know that. But With Mungo, Mungo has so much going on in life. Actually, the love for him, the love and his sexuality that he discovers is his joy in a way. So now let's get into a couple of these characters. So we have Mungo is the center, and then we have his sister Jody and his mother Moma and his brother Hamish. Where did these characters come from for you? I'm always fascinated by family dynamics, and I like to set up my characters with a triangle in some way. There's always someone pushing and pulling and not getting what they want. And so essentially these three siblings, they are the children of a woman who started having kids at 16 years old. So she was a child herself. And she had Hamish, who's the eldest, and then Jodie, and then Mungo, who's the baby. But they're only really a year apart in age each. There was a tragedy with the Hamilton father and Momo, who is the mother, Maureen, has been raising the children by herself, but she's 34 now and she has, her children are almost adults, two of them already are adults, and she wants to go out and rediscover her own life. So she's quite a dark character, but I think she's also quite comedic in the fact that she just keeps vanishing. She keeps going out in search of a good of a good time. And part of me, although readers are like, oh, Maureen, I, oh, I think good honor. You know, she's she's just looking to live a life. And so actually, I have quite a lot of fondness for Maureen, although I don't think readers do. I think in some ways, actually, that's what all the characters are struggling with. They're trying to live a life apart or beyond the life that they, I think, in many ways, find themselves thrown into, you know, and kind of inescapable. That's right. And they're all on the brink of a future. They're all on the brink. All of Maureen and her three children are really on the cusp of a big change in each of their lives. You know, Hamish is the oldest son. He leads the local Protestant gang. You know, housing schemes were often built like a housing project without any kind of amenities or library, a swimming pool, a youth club. And so oftentimes young men, especially if they can't find employment, fell to gangs and sort of recreational violence sometimes. And they become very territorial places in the same way that they do in America, where you have to defend from the scheme across the other way. And and sometimes people can't quite explain why they do that. It's a little bit about reputation. It's a little bit of something to do. It's a little bit of fun, Hamish explains, but it can be a thing. We call them young teams in Glasgow. 
but essentially their gangs. And Hamish is the leader of their gang, which is mostly Protestant or all Protestant boys. And then Jodie is the middle child. Jodie is Mungo's big sister. But like many people I'd known growing up, she has been delegated as a little mother. You know, she's the only girl in a family of boys. And so instantly she was just expected to take care of her brothers, which is deeply sexist, but it's also something that happens a lot. And especially because her mother is frequently gone, right? Like off on benders, you know? That's that's right. And so while Hamish is in a rush to get Mungo to grow up and man up, Jodie is also in a rush for him to man up so that she has to stop taking care of him because she wants to get on with her own life. But she is brilliant. She has a wonderful mind. She has tons of potential. But in lots of ways, it's whether she'll be able to ascend the trap that she's in at the moment and make something of her life. And part of that will come with leaving her younger brother behind because she's been caring for him his whole life. And then Mungo's the youngest. Mungo is, he's on the edge of 16 which is not the song, but it's close to the song. He is, <laughs> uh, he is on the edge of 16, and he's a very handsome young man. He's a very ordinary young man as well. He's not the brightest in the box, but he's very kind, he's very caring, he's quiet. And he suffers from really extreme anxiety, which manifests itself in a facial tick for him. And part of that was, I was thinking a lot about mental health and how men, especially working class men, we're never allowed to release our traumas or talk about our pains or our vulnerabilities. And, and I knew so many hyper-anxious young men when I was a kid, and it manifested in the funniest way. Even myself, I had this huge auto-fixation where I would just chomp on things to try and like quiet in my own anxiety. I ruined so many remote controls as a boy. Uh, <laughs> I do. It was so satisfying, that sort of plasticky rubber texture. But, you know, I just, there was something really satisfying about clenching it behind your, your back mm. teeth. And so Mungo is here and their mother has disappeared. She keeps walking out and coming back and walking out and coming back. And the three children are parentless or motherless. And they're trying to navigate their way towards the futures. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Douglas Stewart, author of Young Mungo. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I have Margot Jefferson on the line. Margot Jefferson is the author most recently of Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir, and she's here to give us a book recommendation. Yes, I am in the midst of reading a book called The Deja Vu, not Deja Vu, but The Deja Vu by a performance artist, a Black feminist performance artist with a wild imagination named Gabrielle Seville, who in fact teaches at CalArts. Yeah, it's Coffee House Press. And it's speaking of various modes of writing, of being, of speaking. There are lectures in it. There are poems in it. There are memories that move into predictions of a future. The past, the present, and the future are always operating on the page in a kind of simultaneous relationship. That's a little bit like what performance art does. If it's successful, you know, you're bringing your past self there. The artist, the performer with her gestures, her silences, whatever the props are, is stimulating 
immediate responses in you and you're trying to gauge what's going to happen next. So how will you be responding in a few seconds or in a few minutes? So, you know, there's that sense of a self suddenly in process. That's what she does with her own life, which ranges from parsing the predictable, but also the unpredictable um, responses after George Floyd's murder, for example, or in the midst of COVID. We were all so swept up in collective responses and they were genuine, but in what ways does one's individual response slightly differ or comment on or question? When she talks about Haitian art, she's Haitian American, it roams from carefully researched history to the sudden, wonderfully opulent, but very exact renderings of Haitian painting and of its traditions and of its cosmology. So literally page by page, it's not that you're disoriented, but you are in continual motion. So it's a memoir, it's a performance. I don't quite know how she does it, but she is able to make thoughts and feelings feel very embodied, feel very visceral and physical on a page. It's partly Mm -hmm. the rhythms of switching forms and genres so much. Sounds amazing. Do you normally like to read work that's so unclassifiable or kind of genre defying? Is that in your wheelhouse? always, but it's in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I've become, I think, again, partly because when I started teaching full time, I was looking at essays. I was looking at traditional essays. I was looking at experimental, often called lyric essays. And when I started to write work on Negroland, I knew that I needed to look at as wide a variety of memoirs, you know, whether it was structure, tone, whatever, as possible. So that has led me to these hybrids. Yeah. I mean, I'll still go back to old standbys, you know, old genre standbys. But yeah, yeah, this is part of of my work and my pleasure doing this. Will you tell us the name of the book and the author again? Absolutely. It is The Deja Vu, what's been seen, what may be seen differently, etc. The Deja Vu subtitle, Black Dreams in Black Time by Gabrielle, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, Seville, C-I-V-I-L, Coffeehouse Plus. Sounds really great. Thank you so much, Margo. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Margo Jefferson. Her latest book is called Constructing a Nervous System. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now back to our conversation with Douglas Stewart, author of Young Mungo. You know, one of the other things that strikes me, if we can kind of move to um, James and Mungo's relationship, is that a lot of it is about social scripts. And all of the characters that you're talking about are both following the social scripts that are part of their community that keep them in some ways like bound to a world that I'm thinking particularly of Hamish is that like that being the head of the local gang is what gives him a feeling of control in a world that he otherwise has zero control over, right? It gives him, and it gives him status and all other kinds of things that are important for just like mentally moving through his life. And it, it's striking to me that when James and Mungo, you know, they're experiencing their first love with one another and obviously their first gay sexual experience, but they almost immediately like script it back into 
a more recognizable kind of heterosexual framework, which there's a moment when... Um, I believe it's James. They're kind of like roughhousing, right? In a way that also becomes very tender and intimate. And James says something to the effect of like, well, you're my girl now. And so I'll take care of you and all of that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, but that's... And it's the characters don't miss a beat when they say this. And I think in some ways, that's about them trying to both engage in something that feels real, that feels like them, but that... Also, they can't deal with the dissonance between what's expected of them outside of this home in which they are alone and then the relationship that they're building inside of it. That's right. And they have no map. They have no nobody that's going to show them the constellation or any kind of positive language. And so they're making it up as they go along. And actually, they're doing things that feel very natural to them. You know, their love is very natural, their affection, how they care for one another. But they keep trying to return it to almost a traditional gender relationship where one is masculine and one is feminine. And that makes more sense to them because they live in that world. And, and you know, it was actually quite challenging to write both Shuggy Bane and Young Mungo to think of how far we've come, what we know, uh, the language we have at our disposal now, and to go back to this time and be like, but the characters don't know this. They don't understand this world. You know, they don't they don't know about gay bars. They don't know about these other things. They're just two lads on this housing scheme. And so I had to I had to really think of it from from their perspective. But the book is so much about masculinity. It's it's about the whole spectrum of it. And and Hamish is one of the darker masculine characters in the book. He's inherited a world that, much like Pittsburgh or Detroit or or any of these large industrial cities, deindustrialized too rapidly and unemployment went to the high 20%. It shaved 11 years off the, the life of a working class man in the East End of Glasgow because so many health problems and trauma problems come in when people are chronically unemployed like that. We know this from Appalachia. We know this from all these other places. It's a universal truth. And Hamish has come of age and just stepped right into this. But but he's a he's a fascinating character for me, I hope, and for readers, because he's a very small, diminutive man, but he's realized that his reputation and his kingdom is very important. And so he, he, he rules with an iron fist, but he rules with a violence that he brings violence before violence is asked of him because he almost is too small, too petite to be able to do yes. anything else. And so he strikes first. And there's something very masculine about that. And so for Mungo, he's a terrifying brother to be around because Mungo never quite knows what he's going to do next. But it's, yeah. it's, it's always threatening. So, you know, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is Glasgow. You know, so if we take them together... Uh, Shuggy Bane and Young Mungo kind of bring to life the world of Glasgow from roughly, I would say, like the 1980s to kind of the early 1990s. Um, I know that that's also part of your own experience of being in Glasgow during the, that time. Um, but I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about what's so distinctive about that time and place for you and kind of why it works as such an evocative and absorbing setting for your writing? Yeah, I think... Obviously, our childhoods always form us and they and they stay with us and really influence our outlook on life throughout our life, I think. And Glasgow is just such an incredibly inspiring city. It's a it's a city that's very proud and 
tight knit. It's it's known by its working class, but it like Pittsburgh, like Detroit, like uh, Albany or the Rust Belt, it deindustrialized really quickly, uh, starting before my youth and then all the way throughout my youth. And so, it was a city of good people that went through a really dark, hard time. I mean, unemployment was really high during my youth. I think it went to the high 20% and it stayed there for most of my childhood. And when a community goes through that, then then sometimes uh, very dark, sticky things can come in. And there was, for many people, a loss of hope. Many people were fine, uh, but some people lost hope. There is a problem with drink and addiction there that certainly touched my own family. But the thing that always has inspired me is just how much humanity there is in the city. And, and I think the humanity can sometimes be quite difficult, meaning there's an awful amount of compassion. There's a lot of understanding because people all went through a very similar thing. Then we can look at human beings with, uh, with an empathy and a compassion. I think Glaswegians are incredibly warm. But because the city went through difficult things, there there is addiction, there was civil unrest, there is uh, violence, and and there's all these other things, and they make a very interesting stew to me. It's often things in opposition. So you have all this love and this warmth and everything that people knows Glasgow to be a very welcoming, friendly city, and then there can be some dark things, or there can be some very difficult things, and they often exist very closely together. and And for me, that's just fascinating. It's fascinating as a writer because. Um, I love contradictions. I love salt with sugar. I love darkness with light. Even within my sentences, I try to have a, a level of tension. When, even when I'm writing about something very beautiful, I try to write about it in a very plain way. And, and when I write about something ugly or violent, I try to write about it beautifully. And, and so I've always pulled that contradiction from Glasgow herself. Another thing that's obviously happened between the time and setting of your two novels, and specifically, obviously, we're talking about Young Mungo, is that we've fast-forwarded, right, about 30 years. So I'm I'm kind of curious about how you see contemporary Glasgow um, in comparison to the, the Glasgow of your of your fiction. And in a in a related way, I'm wondering, you know, how would Mungo encounter contemporary Glasgow? Um, I mean, not only in terms of just the way that maybe politics or economics um, for Glaswegians have changed, but also, you know, the kind of the way that gay culture, both globally and perhaps also in Glasgow itself, has enabled maybe new kinds of possibilities, but also in a unique way, different types of restrictions as well. I think you I think you said it right when you spoke about global. I think the conversation is not just about Glasgow, but I think any place that went through this mass unemployment during the Reagan years, during the Thatcher years, hopefully is under some kind of rejuvenation now. You know, you see it in Philly, you see it in Pittsburgh, you see people sort of pivoting towards new opportunities. And and Glasgow herself has had this huge, enormous rebirth. She's never lost that cultural center that she always had. She's uh, a huge place for the arts and the humanities. She's uh, always been a city that um, really punches above its weight creatively with music, with art, with cinema, with literature. And so, but it's good to now see it it sort of rising out of the ashes of the 70s and the 80s. But also when you talk about globally, it's it's not just about uh, queer pride or gay pride in Glasgow. This was a, a, this was a, 
a story all around the world. There, there wasn't much gay visibility and certainly very little for working class gay people um, in the in the 80s and the 90s. And, and this is something that's changed so drastically. I mean, that's part of the reason why I wanted to write Young Mungo, because I think we're improving constantly and all the time that we're actually in danger of overlooking some of the most difficult parts of our own history as a as a culture. And and, you know, we're so on the brink of uh, so many wonderful things, I think, with uh, with diversity and with equality that we often overlook the painful moments. And I think we always have to learn from history. We shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't whitewash it. And, and we should be very true about some of those really tough times. But Glasgow, uh, actually Scotland as a whole, and the UK is an incredibly diverse country. And I think Scotland leads Europe in its in its queer rights uh, in terms of gay marriage and all these other things. And it was one of the first pioneers. And so it's remarkable to see how far we can all come, no matter where we are, and how quickly we can do it. Is that surprising to you as somebody, you know, who is from that area, who writes about that area? Um, I'm just wondering, I guess, in some sense, it's like, could you have imagined that kind of leadership role on gay rights and gay civil rights for Glasgow as a child? I don't think I ever could have. No, it was, I felt like my childhood and my own coming of age was in such a dark place. And I mean, even when I came out at 16 or 17, even the people who accepted me were very disappointed for me. I think they were very worried about how the world, how hard it was to be a gay person and how they knew how much harder my life would be uh, as I sort of grew up. And and I don't think anyone could quite understand that I could grow up to be a happy, well-loved man who had love in his life and, and who really... And, you know, and so I'm glad that that's how it turned out. But at the time, I'm not sure any of us were aware that that was coming. Mm. So if we think about the kind of arc of Shuggy Bane and Young Mungo is moving from 1980s to the early 1990s, what are you thinking about? I mean, I know this is always a hard thing to ask a writer, but are you, you know, is this a kind of world that you want to keep moving through or, um, you know, kind of what are you looking to next? Yeah, I think, you know, Shuggy and Mungo are almost cycles of manhood. They're about a young boy coming up through all different challenges in his life, but but becoming a man. They're all on the brink of, of becoming the person they, they're going to be. And my next novel deals with that same sort of thing. It looks at a slightly older protagonist, someone who's in his 20s, but, but is also still wrangling with some secrets within his family, but also what he is on the cusp of the life he's trying to make for himself. And, and I'm sure people will look at the gaps between my characters and in those small gaps will try to discover me or discover my own personal narrative. And I think in many ways, I'm always sort of drawn or influenced by my life. But I, I like to think of these characters, as I've said before, like a tapestry or as people who are reaching out and, and holding hands with each other. You know, one thing that you had said earlier in our conversation was your kind of interest or... Um, I guess investment might be too strong of a word in gay romance. Um, and can you just talk to me a little bit about what, I mean, I, I say this as somebody who very much resonates with that. Like I, I love reading queer romances, not least of which probably because there weren't that many of them when I was younger. So I feel like there's this weird time lag effect where, you know, when I'm reading Young Mungo, I'm reading the kind of book that I had wished was around when I was a kid. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about your interest in kind of queer romance and how you see that as being different from a kind of writer perspective than other types of romance? 
Yeah. You know, I devour queer romance whenever I can find it. I've, I've loved, you know, Giovanni's Room for the longest time or the, or the Swimming Pool Library or The Line of Beauty. I mean, uh, and one of my favorite books actually is As Meat Loves Salt by Maria McCann. And so I I devour queer romance. And, and I think I'm always hopeful for the love at the heart of it. But for me, I had wanted to look at queer romance through Young Mungo also intersecting with uh, tight-knit community and poverty, because I never find that reflected in these novels, these novels that I've always loved. I've, and the consequences for the characters when you have money, when you have mobility, when you have the agency to be able and up and leave your life and go somewhere else, is just very different for a queer man rather than people who have to deal, the only place they belong is the place that they are and they cannot leave that place. And so I like how that intensifies the romance. I like how brave Mungo and James are and how pure they are in the book. And, you know, I'm a hopeful romantic. I write a lot about violence and sadness and loss and grief, but actually at its core, I I, I do it only to celebrate the love and to make the love uh, seem more resilient. Well, that's the only way that you can make it through some of those horrible experiences or difficult, challenging experiences is through having love as some kind of anchor or a, a viewpoint on the horizon. That's right. And hope is hope is eternal and it is constantly renewing itself, but it doesn't have to be this big, loud, shouty thing or this sunrise on the landscape. Sometimes hope is just the ability to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and face another day. And I like to think my characters are masters at that. They They just get up again and they think today is going to be better. I think that's a lovely note to end on. Very beautifully put. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Douglas Stewart, author most recently of Young Mungo. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Flodden. Teasley-Flodden.